Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and blue skies. A few weeks ago, former Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole bid farewell to Canadian politics, leaving behind the Conservative Party that he called home for over a decade in office. In his goodbye speech in Parliament, he warned Canadians about the polarization of politics. Performance politics is fueling polarization. Virtue signaling is replacing discussion. And the danger of the social media algorithm. Too many of us are often chasing algorithms down a sinkhole of diversion and division. Some of his comments left me with more questions than answers. So we invited Aaron O'Toole to the Candleland studio for an interview. In this episode, we are unraveling the layers of Aaron O'Toole's tenure as a Canadian politician, how he views the evolving landscape of Canadian conservatism, and about his biggest regrets in office. Not my biggest accomplishments, Matea? No, we don't have time for that. No, yeah. <laughs> Let's get into it. Please welcome to the studio, Aaron O'Toole. Great to be here. So first question, just as a little, you know, icebreaker, do you have any fun summer plans lined up? Well, I'm going to go to Nova Scotia um, maybe once or twice mm -hmm. to see friends and family. My, our family's in Fall River. And so when we're in Fall River, it's easy for me to get into Halifax. So a lot of family time. I'm also starting a new job, so a lot of uh, reading up and getting up to speed. So summer will be a little bit of work, but with some pleasure. All right. Well, maybe I'll run into you in Nova Scotia. I'm probably going to be there for most of the month of July. <laughs> I know we will at least cross paths once. That's true. That's very true. So to go a little bit back in time, was there a specific moment when you knew you wanted to run for office as a conservative or you wanted to kind of pledge your allegiance, so to speak, for the conservative party? I know a lot of elected officials will speak about either, you know, a leader that really inspired them or sometimes I've heard of like, you're dating a girl who's a member of the Liberal Party, and then that ends up being people's way in. So what made you run with the Conservatives? I joined the military out of high school. So I went to military college in Kingston and became very, very knowledgeable about foreign affairs, defense policy, security. And so those are sort of the policy areas that some Conservatives are interested in. What's Canada's role in the world? What has it been in the past? What's in the future? But when I was commissioned as a young Air Force officer, my father ran for provincial politics as a PC mm -hmm. provincial member, MPP, we call it here in Ontario. 
And I volunteered on his campaign. And that's when I really fell in love with the door knocking, chatting to people, you know, pounding in signs, kind of the volunteer elbow grease of politics. And when I became a full-fledged Tory, if you want to call it that. But then I kept on my military career, my private sector career. I knew I might run one day because I had that passion I think I got from watching my, my father and my mother both be involved in their community. But I think it was his campaign in 1995 when I became a, a card-carrying pc or, or eventually a federal conservative person. I was PC federally and provincially back in those days, mm -hmm. and uh, I've stuck with it ever since. Moving into sort of the present day, if you had to choose, and I know that this is tough because oftentimes people will give like a laundry list, but what to you are the most critical issues in Canada today? Right now, it's our economy. And if you want to say the economy is innovation and, and creating intellectual property and commercializing that in Canada, or how do we make sure that we're taking advantage of our natural resource wealth while also lowering emissions? You know, the decarbonization economy over the next couple of years. No one's really spoken to that in a serious way, I don't think, because mm -hmm. our prosperity as a country is dependent on a healthy private sector. And Canada's heritage is as a resource power. So as we want to, you know, transition to lower carbon forms of energy, we have to be doing more on the intellectual property side. So we need to keep jobs. We need to keep the, the rims, the Blackberries, the open techs, the Shopify's, and have far more people working in that part of the economy while also bringing emissions down on the resource side. So I don't think it's not an either or, it's a both. And I think that whether you want to call it the energy transition or our economic, the green economy, no one has really been tackling it in the way I think we need to. Yeah, so I guess one thing I'm curious about just with that answer is because you mentioned this idea of like we need to tap into the natural resource wealth that we have while also decarbonizing. Do you not feel like sometimes there is an inherent tension there that so much of that natural resource wealth either is like in the form of oil, which it's how can you decarbonize when you're continuing to do things like extract oil, expand tar sands, build pipelines, et cetera? What does, I guess, tapping into our natural resources while also doing a transition away from being as reliant on some of those, like, I guess, worse for the environment natural resources? Like, what does that look like to you, do you think? It's tough, but we have to have, I would say, literally a 30-year plan mm -hmm. on how to decarbonize, how to slowly use less carbon-intense forms of energy, particularly mm -hmm. for electricity generation. So in Ontario, it's nuclear or hydro. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't discover a new Niagara Falls every couple of weeks. So you'll have to decide on how much more nuclear are you going to bring on to make sure you have low emission electricity. But as we build EVs and have less emission from, you know, vehicles, we need critical minerals, which are in the north. So, or in northern Ontario, the Ring of Fire, other parts of the, the country. So if we don't take advantage of our energy sources, both hydrocarbons and critical minerals, those will be replaced on the global scene by countries with less high standards of environmental, indigenous respect, human rights respect you know, the, the the Venezuelas of the world, the Russias of the world, the Chinas of the world. So I think Canada has a role to make sure that over the next 20, 30 years, as the globe starts this transition, that we're a leading part of it, not just dragged along. So how well do you feel that the current Conservative Party, so I suppose during your time as leader, but then also now since you've, I guess, done your own transition away from leadership and now leaving politics, 
How well do you think the current conservative party addresses these issues you just mentioned? I think we oscillate back and forth, to be honest with you, with trying to tackle this transition piece properly. I tried to tackle it seriously. I hired the the best climate consultants in the country, Navius Research out of BC. I engaged with NGOs, with leading thinkers like Mark Jacquard, to try and come up with a way that we could have a real plan to meet our emission targets while also producing energy in the oil sands and and in other parts of the country. Not an easy balance. Mm-hmm. And I seem to have the perfect effect of upsetting people on both left and right. Uh, so maybe I guess I was then equal. <laughs> there were equal parts frustrated with me. But right now, I don't see the, the Trudeau government meeting any of their targets. They talk a great game. They're taxing a lot, but they actually haven't met emission targets. And now the new leader, having seen what I went through with with my climate plan, is back to sort of saying, let's just axe the carbon tax. That's fine. But how are you going to get emissions down? The price on carbon, whether it's a tax to government or whether it's a price used by industry, I think is a good measure Mm -hmm. to actually have a sort of private sector-led emission reduction plan. But I think he has time to come up with a plan to show how he can meet Paris and get rid of the tax. I think that will be one of the sort of balances Pierre has to strike. Yeah, and I'm kind of respect that you brought up yourself that your approach maybe uh, upset both sides in some senses. Because I think one sort of struggle with taking the the big tent approach when you're leading uh, a party like the Conservatives specifically is that you end up sort of upsetting the, I guess, most hardline aspect of your own party while also people in the the center and, and on the left are saying you're not doing enough. And if I'm remembering right, I think in the 2021 campaign, we saw parties just sort of trying to one-up one another with how much they were going to reduce their emissions by 2030. And you saw just like escalating numbers right up to, I think the Green Party was going to cut by half or something like that. <laughs> Matea, I'm glad you raised that because that was actually a result of the conservatives having a real plan. I said this plan would meet the original Paris targets by 2030. The Trudeau liberals saw, okay, O'Toole's serious they changed their targets twice over the next two months, but with mm. no new plan to to make it. I think they have 47% reduction targets now, mm-hmm. and they're not even on track for a 30% reduction. So I, I've always said, let's be honest with Canadians. Let's not mislead them on either the left, that there's an apocalypse in the next couple of years, or on the right, that there's no problem at all. I think we have to come up with a way that Canada can lead the world in transition by using high ESG energy sources, but with a real firm commitment to lower emissions. You know, you take this big tent approach, you say, okay, let's have a, you know, these market-based solutions and we're going to do the carbon tax. But then, you know, at certain points during the leadership campaign, perhaps when trying to curry favor with people that are really like against the concept of any sort of carbon pricing, you know, that would be sort of supporters of Poilievre's current approach of like, we're just going to axe it all together. There was a sense in some quarters that you were flip-flopping on certain policy positions you know, either in terms of changing tune, depending on whether you're running for the leadership or whether you're running to BPM, or just sort of speaking differently when you're when you're talking to different people. So do you feel like your approach during either the leadership campaign or, you know, the, the eventual federal election eroded trust in your leadership at all? Because it's been a bit of a trend, I guess, with the Conservative Party lately that, you know, you were given sort of one chance to become prime minister, Andrew Scheer, before you really only got one chance. That's not always how it works in federal politics when a leader does not 
win an election, right? Sometimes you see people being given a little bit more runway. So do you feel like you could have done anything differently, I suppose, to maintain the trust of your caucus and of your members? Well, good question. Stephen Harper was given two chances and one on the second chance. Robert Stanfield, someone often called the best prime minister we never had, he got three chances and never won. We were winning through most of the campaign, Matea, until the end when COVID came back and our our positions really were insufficient for a number of swing voters. And I take responsibility for that. The funny thing is, is in the leadership race, I was attacked by other candidates for two things. One was my firm commitment to have a real environmental plan. I made a bit of a mistake. I used the term subsidies, which unless you very much define what is considered a subsidy, certain tax treatment for exploration, I didn't mean to be caught in that. And so I upset people with that. But I said very clearly, and I've said this before the 2015 election, I, as a parent, want to have a plan to reduce our mission targets. When when we sign on to something, whether it's Paris or whether it's NATO, we should have a plan to meet our commitments. Canada should be a country that keeps its word. I was also attacked for my position on rights. I was more progressive than some, some of the other candidates. And so frustrations later on, on my climate plan, for example, is not something that I hid from people. I was very pro getting our resources to market through a pipeline. You know, I was very clear on that. But I always said for us to be able to balance off the social license of developing these resources, there has to be two things, a climate plan and indigenous economic participation. And I came up with a platform that had both. Had we won, people would have said it was brilliant. We Mm -hmm. didn't win and people were upset. Fair enough. So I guess that brings us to the current conservative approach that we're seeing, right? Because, yeah, I think often what will happen is after an election doesn't go the way of a party. This is true with the conservatives. This is true of when the liberals lose elections as well. You know, people try and recalibrate and and often will try and move away from whatever strategy uh, they used when they lost the previous election, kind of regardless of, of whether or not the strategy was good. So One word that we see used a lot with regards to the current conservative approach to things is populism, right? So the notion of we're going to tap into this public discontent and frustration that has really accumulated over the course of COVID, people's frustration surrounding the cost of living and all of these things. So there's many things, I think, that are valid that people are frustrated with in this country. A lot of people have said that Pierre Poiliev has run sort of a a populist campaign, I guess, first when he was running to be leader and now when he's positioning himself in opposition to Justin Trudeau. So first off, I guess, do you agree with that characterization? Is that in line with how you think conservative leadership should be in contemporary times? Well, I think every leader rises to meet the times. And when I lost the election in 21, largely due to a lot of pandemic-related issues, there was a move for a lot of people, in some cases, to join the Conservative Party for the first time, people that were against confinement laws or lockdowns or some of the vaccine policies around the country. Those aren't what I would call traditional conservatives. Those are people that were kind of disenfranchised by being boxed out or losing their small business because of of closures here in Toronto or something. So Pierre will have to have the balance of satisfying those people who are more what I would call populist in terms of their reacting to something Mm. alongside traditional conservatives like me who are kind of private sector focused but also like the sort of state to stay out of people's business largely, want people to try and solve problems at a community level before looking to Ottawa. 
I call myself a a traditional liberty-based conservative, you know, ordered liberty, Burke, Edmund Burke. And if you don't have sort of respect for institutions and the rule of law and these sorts of things, you can't then have liberty. You have to respect one another. So that is sometimes hard to square with people that are coming in to, to tear things down or the, the folks that are now looking for answers. So that will be the challenge he has to, to balance is some of the folks that are more the, the populist nature that are now in the party. I wasn't ever going to be mm-hmm. happy <laughs> their, their choice of leader. Pierre has to, to keep them engaged without mm-hmm. losing, I would say, kind of traditional conservative or suburban voters. How possible do you think that is to do? Because I think... When you look at sort of some of that impulse to tear institutions down or to, I guess, undermine people's trust in things like whether the the rule of law is going to protect them or that sort of thing. When you look at some of the folks that were drawn to the Conservative Party because of the COVID response, right, people who felt extreme levels of resentment about feeling like they were confined or feeling like their businesses were harmed and now fundamentally have this level of distrust of the concept of government at all— that seems to me like it's fundamentally in tension with the sort of ordered liberty version of conservatism that you're talking about. So is there a danger that by tapping into this sort of well of anti-establishment sentiment, you sort of create, you know, a, a section of the population that feels justified in kind of attacking institutions and they're hived off and there's no way to kind of get them back into that ordered liberty mindset, if that makes sense? Um, no, it, but it's, you're right. There's a tension. There's absolutely a tension. And each leader has to, to try and maintain those traditional principles alongside the, the latest hopes, fears, and aspirations of the country. We've seen this before, not just in Canada. You know, look at the, the, the Bernie Sanders movement in the U.S., which disrupted democratic politics on the left. You know, he would call himself a democratic socialist, which some sort of, you know, suburban country club <laughs> Democrats in the U.S., probably thought that was crazy, but the party had to sort of come to terms with it. Parties on the right have the same thing, where you'll have kind of a libertarian or increasingly a populist element of folks that are looking for answers from the politicians. And if they're upset with the liberals, the sort of status quo, they want the main opponent to reflect their hopes, fears, and aspirations. And that's where the tension will have to be to make sure you don't lose sight of the big picture of an ordered liberty approach to conservatism while addressing the the fears of some people. And it's not easy. Like, look, I, I lost my job amidst a convoy kind of <laughs> lockdown of Ottawa. It was, they were calling for my head. But for the same reason I said people couldn't blockade bridges or pipelines to make a political point, I couldn't support truckers doing it. And, you know, some did in my caucus. And that that was ultimately a bit of a showdown that I lost. So it's not an easy tension. But what I said in my final speech, politicians on left and right also have to look at the wider national interests and to say, how can we bring people together in a time when people are fractured? Yeah, so I'm really glad that you brought up your final speech because I know that that's something that's been getting quite a lot of play in interviews that you're doing. And I think that you made some very valid points in that speech about sort of the role that social media has had in the increased polarization of our politics and the way that just like increasingly divisive content gets shared by dint of like, I guess, how platforms actually work, the fact that they specifically trade on content that gets people riled up. Instead of leading... Instead of debating our national purpose in this chamber, too many of us are often chasing algorithms down a sinkhole of diversion and division. 
we are becoming elected officials who judge our self-worth by how many likes we get on social media, but now not how many lives we change in the real world. Performance politics is fueling polarization. Virtue signaling is replacing discussion. And far too often, Mr. Speaker, we're just using this chamber to generate clips, not to start national debates. So I guess I've grown up with this constantly being a part of my politics. Like the first election that I remember following was in 2011. And that was already, you know, an election where Twitter was being used in an election where there were some like pretty inflammatory attack ads that I remember seeing. The Michael Ignatieff is back in Canada ad is something that I make jokes about. It's still all the time to this day. Just visiting, I think. Yeah, I just, said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't come back for you. Michael Ignatieff is back in Canada. But why? While away, he called our flag a passing imitation of a beer label. Ignatieff, he didn't come back for you. One thing that I did, though, wonder listening to your speech is I was thinking about the 2021 campaign and some of the ads that were run by the conservatives when you were leader. And we actually have some printouts that my producers have helpfully found for me. We have an ad here that was from the 2021 campaign. We have an ad here that is a Pierre Poiliev ad from Contemporary Times. We have some Defend the CBC ads. Again, this one is from when you were leader. This one is from Contemporary when Pierre is leader. So I guess my question for you then is, again, I, I take sincerely the comments that you've made about social media polarization now that you're on your way out of politics. But I think some folks might hear those comments remembering some of the ads that your party ran while you were leader and kind of think, OK, what's going on here? Like, is this kind of a, a realization that you've had within the past two years, seeing that this form of campaigning did not work for you? Is he full um, of it? Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> was this like completely a cynical, cynical from the start? Well, in my speech, I included myself in all the discussions and uh, ironic with the defund the CBC comment. I was on the CBC this morning talking about the fact that I made mistakes sometimes in my conversations on cancel culture and and balancing off uh, reconciliation with how do we teach history. These aren't easy conversations. It's easy mm -hmm. to fall in to a pitfall of division. And that's why I had the tone wrong a lot of the time. On the defund the CBC, I think there's a significant portion of the population that want that. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of conservatives that feel that over time there's a cultural bias in an organization, which is normal. Mm -hmm. So whenever asked to clarify the ads about defund, I would always say this needs to be a public broadcaster. There should be no commercials on television. It mm -hmm. shouldn't be producing. I used to use the example of a Canadian edition of The Price is Right. Is that really fulfilling Canadian mm. culture? Whereas the radio, which generally leads in most of its markets, is commercial free. So the defund portion I always clarified by saying we're going to go back to having it as a public broadcaster, mm -hmm. like a PBS model. That's probably not sufficient now because, A, I didn't win the election with a more moderate view mm -hmm. of defund. So I think Pierre's version of defund may be complete defund. But I think to be able to make sure that linguistic minority communities, the North, are served, there has to be something of a public broadcaster. You can't just raise the whole building. But mm -hmm. that's up to the next leader to define. So you're saying it seems as though the version of defund the CBC, just as an example, or the version of like Take Back Canada that we're going to get now is something that's perhaps a, a more complete iteration of that. So what I get from that then is like, 
okay, well, when I was running these ads, it was sort of intended, I guess, to grab attention and then maybe direct people to go look at the platform and see the more moderated version of that. But people respond so well to that kind of messaging that they've now elected a leader of the conservative party that is actually just going to do the full-out version of those things. So I guess my question is, like, how can the genie get put back in the bottle, so to speak, right? Because I think, you know, I, I think generally speaking, most of the listeners of our show probably agree that we need to have some version of the public CBC. Uh, some people would think that we also need Family Feud Canada, and it's very important for Jerry D to give, you know, so-and-so. I think we so need so. Jeopardy Canada, but, yeah. <laughs> I think that we can do just fine on the American version <laughs> of that show. There is now this contingent of people that is, like, really riled up against uh, a lot of institutions. So not just the CBC, but also, you know, that fundamentally, like, don't trust any sort of government-led investigation, kind of regardless of what it's about, whether it's the China probe, whether it's the Emergencies Act inquiry, like just assume that anything that the government does is going to be kind of bogus. So do you feel in any way that your leadership of the Conservative Party may have contributed to this kind of slide that we've seen into, okay, well, we're going to use divisive language and we're going to get people riled up, but then we can look at this moderate platform and then like that's going to be fine, to now we have a version of the Conservative Party where a lot of members of caucus are pretty openly engaging in this, like, very tear-it-down type rhetoric. Personally, I think you're conflating a, a few things there. First off, social media, since it started back in 2011, mm -hmm. I don't even think Stephen Harper was on Twitter or Facebook in 2011. I was elected in 2012, and it started getting adapted. But really, we're now learning the power of algorithms today. And, mm -hmm. and now people can marshal the power of algorithms that they really weren't doing in the past. The other aspect that I think is important because people never draw this line. When I talked about Take Back Canada, mm -hmm. that's when I was running for leader of the conservatives. Mm -hmm. I was talking to about 300,000 or so conservatives who had watched Justin Trudeau come in in 2015 and make a very public to the whole country statement that Canada is back. And mm -hmm. in fact, in his last major ad, he said he was going to take back mm -hmm. Canada from the Harper agenda and the Harper conservatives. So there's a bit of rhetoric always in politics, but I think it's less concerning mm -hmm. in a leadership race when you're talking to only the people that have already self-selected to be there. Mm -hmm. I tried very carefully to tap some of the anger out West to make sure that they knew that a moderate suburban dad mm -hmm. could represent their fears and frustrations in certain ways. Some of the animus towards the CBC was one. The inability to get a pipeline built was another. But I always tried to do that by saying, hey, and here's my record on the environment and rights, for example. You're going to get that whether you like it or not, but I can speak to those fears. What you then say to the wider general population when you're leader and when you're asking to represent all Canadians, whether they vote for you or not, they don't select into the group you're talking to. They're everyone, which is why I always said I wanted the Conservative Party when I was running to be Prime Minister to be a reflection of Canada mm -hmm. today in 2021, I used to say. And so did sometimes my language get a bit rhetorical flourish? And mm -hmm. Absolutely. But if you actually looked at every policy document I put out, it was always generally socially moderate. Mm -hmm and generally focused on economic growth. What Pierre will be held to is, if he's going to be prime minister, he has to make sure that everyone feels represented un under mm -hmm. that. This morning, CBC was asking me about pride parades, and I was always very, very open with, I wanted to participate in parades that didn't exclude police or, or other groups if it was about 
celebrating everyone. And that was important to me. I'd taken part in Pride events before. That is something that the new leader will have to say, how do all Canadians know that they're going to be respected and feel that their democracy is working for them. It's a challenge in this social media age, particularly with all the ripples we get from the United States. But I think that's an obligation that anyone stepping forth to lead our country has to live by. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Mornings can be hard. I am not an expert at starting my morning off on the right foot. I wake up, I'll snooze my alarm, I'll lay in bed, and then the rest of my day just seems like it is not going to go right. But with AG1 from Athletic Greens, I at least know that I'm getting some level of consistency every morning because taking AG1 is a daily habit that is easy to work into any routine. AG1 is a foundational nutritional drink that's packed with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients. It's recommended that you take AG1 on an empty stomach, which is why I would recommend starting your day with your AG1, followed by breakfast and some coffee. If you're looking for a simpler and more cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com backbench. That's athleticgreens.com backbench. Check it out. I suppose one thing that this does draw to mind, though, is it seems that the the fundamental problem of social networks are so calibrated now. And like you say, the landscape is very different than in 2011 or even in 2015 when Trudeau was first running to be prime minister. They're so calibrated to really, really push content that is divisive and that in many cases contains like disinformation. And so it strikes me that one thing that we have to contend with now is not just like advertising from political parties, but is you know, what are third-party groups saying and what are their interventions into the discourse looking like on the part of activist groups, whether that's right-wing, left-wing, whatever. What is your feeling on, on what the solution to that is, right? Because, you know, even if political parties, let's say, opt to really moderate what their language is, both on the left and the right, there are going to be, you know, you bring up pride parades. I think of the amount of just, like, extremely vitriolic anti-queer and anti-trans content that I see pushed by the Twitter algorithm these days. Like, do you see, you know, any any sort of solution to that kind of polarization? Like, what should the role of our government be, perhaps, in addressing that? Well, conversations like this, Matea, are part of it. I, I actually think that, that, you know, this broadcast in Canada Land has been an important element of it. Listening to the backbench with the previous host, Fatima, I heard her interview a PPC member from Western Alberta or Western Canada, and I reached out. Now, people probably would be surprised that I'm a subscriber to this uh, podcast, but I think it's important for people to hear the other side, audi alterum partum, the Latin phrase I always toss around, because the algorithm's never going to let you see it. So if you actually don't self-select, or if you are scared of having longer form discussions with people who may not share the same point of view on all issues, we're slowly just going to silo ourselves. And I've seen that happen in the last few years. So A, I think conversations like this and podcasts or longer form journalism that allows a bit of cross-pollination is, is important. But B, the second thing, we need a bit more transparency on algorithms. We need a bit more public education about how your data might be used, a little bit of control over your own data and 
how you are receiving your information because I don't think a lot of people even know that it's happening. There has been some positive cross-party work. Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, the Liberal, and, and Bob Zimmer, a Conservative, were involved in a multi-country examination of social media and how to regulate it without stifling free speech. Some of the conversations are starting, but we're actually behind where Europe is a little bit. I think we're really just understanding the need, especially with young people, to let people know that you are not getting a full picture of issues by just following your normal social media channel. So this is the challenge, I think, of, of the next generation in politics, is how to make sure we're still having real conversations and not just talking to our existing preference bubble. Yeah. And I think that that's definitely true. Like when real conversations can happen, they can be very transformative. I think that the the trouble is like with creating the conditions in which those conversations can actually happen, right? Because I think if you have one side of a conversation, for instance, let's say one side of the conversation that believes that the CBC is like completely bought out and is like none of their news content is, is to be at all taken seriously, right? Or one side of a conversation where there are people who are going to protests who are saying, like, you know, all queer and trans adults are are attempting to groom children. Like, there are certain types of conspiratorial thinking or certain entrenchments, I guess, of political positions that are such that it it makes it impossible for the other side to have a conversation with that kind of position, right? Because one side is staked on really not recognizing the humanity or not recognizing, like, the, you know, the, the goodwill of the other side, right? So when there is a certain segment of the population that is so entrenched in those kinds of views that they are not willing to have a conversation, like, what's going to change to make those folks willing to converse or, or willing to talk? If I were to try and sit down and have a conversation with, say, someone who has been showing up at, like, anti-drag queen story hour protests, just as an example. And they fundamentally think that, like, I, by virtue of my identity, am, like, a deeply evil person who is engaged in conspiracy that simply I am not. I I'm not sure how we converse our way out of those kinds of problems. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I agree. Um, but if we're not even connecting or not even listening to each other, we'll never know if we can converse ourselves out of those problems. I actually think what is also out there is the algorithms are fueling extremes on both left and right. And some of our adversaries, Russia, China, are actually throwing what I'd saw fuel on the fire. They want chaos. They want division. We've seen that in the U.S., how some of the, you know, the pizza shop pedophile ring, you know, crazy conspiracies on QAnon led to deaths. And there are bad actors around the world that want to see the democracies of the world in chaos. So I think it, it gives us a, a higher need to step up in an all-party way to make sure that we have a little bit more transparency on algorithms. How do we bring into public education the ability to hear different points of view? To be honest, I was just talking with my staff member about this. I'm very worried about young men seeing some of the Instagram and social media portrayals of, of hyper-masculinity and some of the most prominent names on some of these channels. Andrew Tate, I hadn't heard that name until my kids started talking about how he was disrupting classrooms and my son wouldn't talk to his friend because his friend would bring up Andrew Tate on video games. And, you know, I was proud of my son. 
but my goodness, they're talking about this sort of stuff. And then when I found out this person is one of the top trending influencers, that's horrific. And so I think these are conversations that schools need to be having, parents and, and kids and parliamentarians, because people are surfing on this stuff, whether it's the Andrew Tates of the world or, or others, and it's going to cause more social dislocation and more polarization. So one thing that I want to kind of touch on that you brought up was this notion that our foreign adversaries, so to speak, prey on this kind of when we have discord, when we can't talk to each other. And this is something that's obviously been incredibly in the news over the past couple of months, the allegations of foreign interference by the Chinese government. So you've openly criticized the investigations that have been conducted into foreign interference so far, specifically David Johnston's report, as kind of being inadequate responses to the situation. So... I suppose what I want to know is where do you think the government went wrong on this and what might you have done differently to respond to these allegations of interference? Well, there's been no proper investigation. Before Mr. Johnston, there was a former civil servant named Morris Rosenberg who was asked to look at the 21 election. He didn't speak to me or any of my key campaign people on the election. So we were the target of the misinformation by Beijing. You would have thought he would have done that. Now, he happened to be the former head of the Trudeau Foundation and blah, 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 all those linkages. Mm -hmm. That just shows how incredibly naive the prime minister is to think that the Trudeau Foundation since 2017 has been caught receiving donations from Beijing through intermediaries. Do you think if you're going to have an impartial look at the election, you pick someone that led the organization? It was just either dumb or incredibly naive. And so Mr. Rosenberg's report was not a real report. If you don't speak to the party that was targeted, not a real report. Mr. Johnston, who I've, you know, I've been very public, I think is a great Canadian. He served ably, was kind of set up to fail by a terms of reference that allowed some of the people that should have been critiqued to lead him through a select sampling of some of the intelligence. He had completed his report before he had his meeting with me or conservatives as well. And I prepared some materials for him. That's not his fault. That was a terms of reference set up to fail. What we need is a complete public inquiry that is independent, that the opposition parties need to have a say on. Probably a judge that is, has a neutral background and she or he can come up with a terms of reference and perhaps other commissioners as well. This is going to be a complex exercise because some of it will have to be done in camera. Mm -hmm. But I'm of the view that in a parliamentary democracy with 338 seats, we should not accept with shrugged shoulders that, well, maybe five or six will be flipped by foreign powers. Yeah. No, we have to do everything possible to make sure that we safeguard a democracy. And it should be nonpartisan. I've always tried since after the election. I, I didn't speak about this because mm -hmm. I didn't want anyone to think that my concern about a handful of ridings was somehow undermining the, the election. No, we saw acute targeting of a few ridings that we need to clean up next time. The way that this has been played, I would say by some conservatives and also by the NDP, has been a lot more kind of specifically targeted at him, his motives, the way that he was selected and that sort of thing. So how do you feel about the way that this has been discussed, I guess, publicly 
and and how does this kind of interact, I guess, with this general like animus against, again, like any kind of government investigation, trusting that the government is going to truly ever set things up in a nonpartisan way? I didn't like it. I didn't like some of the rhetoric, including from my own side uh, with respect to David Johnston. And really, we should have just held to account the terms of reference. And he was asked to do this or charged to do this by the prime minister. We've never had a special rapporteur before. So this was all kind of a, a diversion to avoid an inquiry in the first place. But I don't like I don't like the personal politics if we can avoid it. Sometimes somebody's you know, Mr. Menducino is in trouble for not being truthful in the last number of months on a few things. That's when you hold an elected official account. I would never, or would try and not criticize civil servants. I would always try and hold ministers to account and to do so in a way that was based on performance, not personality. The The challenge here is the, the Trudeau Foundation, the very fact, as I said, Rosenberg had chaired it Almost everyone that they had investigating this had some sort of association with the Trudeau Foundation. You couldn't pick out of, we now have 40 million people in Canada, Matea. You had to find people that had, you know, the 0.0002% of the population that have some tie to the Trudeau Foundation. That was just negligent on the on the part of the PMO and the prime minister himself. So I, I would prefer to hold him to account. But it's an, another reason why I think this should just be handed off to an independent inquiry quickly so that we can at least have some preliminary learnings on what to do, maybe change nominations, more transparency on, on donations. Certainly, we have to let more and more Canadians know that WeChat and certain, you know, non-Canadian social media sites are propaganda tools for a foreign power and people can't trust what's on there. So I think there's a lot of things we could do right away to prepare for the next election and then have an inquiry to look not only backwards but forwards. One thing that's been lost for me in a lot of these conversations is it's been quite backward-looking of, okay, well, how can we get to the bottom of what's already happened? These problems are, are not things that are going to go away. If anything, foreign interference seems like something that's going to only, you know, intensify in its seriousness going forward and become harder to monitor since a lot of it is in this kind of like back-channel WeChat kind of environment. Now that you're at the end of your time in politics, you know, you were, I believe— 11, 12 years as a member of parliament? Ten and a half. Ten and a half. I'm, re- I'm inflating your numbers here. What am I doing? <laughs> Ten and a half You're ready years for politics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the devil works hard, but politicians trying to get me to enter politics work harder. Um, <laughs> looking back on your time, what do you feel are your biggest regrets? Are there things like... If not you could my name, biggest accomplishments, Matea? No, feel, we don't have time for that. No, yeah. <laughs> no, but like if there are one or two things that you could go back and do differently, what would those things be? Often I think of times where I had a completely wrong tone and very flippant in conversations about cancel culture. I took history at university. I, I love our history. I know there's big flaws in our history, but I, I've never been a fan of just canceling something or tearing it down. I gave us an important speech as leader trying to talk about the legacy of John A. Macdonald and Louis Riel and the fact that, you know, both did good things, both did terrible things. And how do we learn from it and become better and strive to be better? I've written on this for many years, but sometimes, especially on social media, especially speaking to a smaller group, I've gotten really flippy and that denigrates the subject, particularly when it comes to residential schools. So, you know, after I had one discussion on the subject of Ryerson, now Toronto Metropolitan U, I had a chat with Murray Sinclair. You know, I, I, I regretted how I approached that discussion. 
Most of the lefty radicals are also the dumbest people at your university. That, that's part of the problem. I still bring up Sir Johnny McDonald. Some people think I'm crazy. But I think if you do it in a way that's respectful to the trauma that people have suffered, you can then sort of say, here's my intention, is balancing off getting better in the future with learning about the past. So there's a couple of examples from that where I think I really had the tone wrong and I could have been a much better public servant. Well, again, I, I appreciate that honest reflection because I think some folks, when they hear, you know, what are your biggest regrets? It's, it's like when you're in a job interview and it's like, what's your greatest weakness? And it's like, I, I, care, I care too much and I work too hard. Um, <laughs> no, I, listen, I, I'm proud of a lot of things we did. There's there's a famous thing on social media of me making a joke about a porta potty. I'm sure you've seen it. You know, that was after I had a conversation out front of Langevin Block and drifting into the shot was this porta potty. It was during the leadership. Mm. So I was doing a Facebook Live to conservative members and made a very crass, stupid joke. It was later repositioned on Twitter as if the opposition leader walked over and did a video in front of this. And so you've also learned how. Twitter armories working against you can pour through little clips and represent it in a different way. But the initial joke was crass and stupid, and there would have been no gotcha moment later on by the Twitter trolls had I taken the subject I was speaking about seriously and not been flippant. The, the good thing is, is when I would call, you know, Murray Sinclair or, or other Indigenous leaders, they knew my background on working on Indigenous reconciliation even before I got elected. Mm -hmm. So they would kind of give me a bit of grace. They say, that wasn't your finest hour, Aaron. Let's see what you can do in the coming platform. And I had some great stuff. So learning from where you fall a bit short is I think the humility all politicians on all sides should strive to have. So now that you are no longer going to be in parliament with the liberals and the NDP as your political adversaries, is there anything that you want to shout out, I suppose, that you admire about the Liberal Party or the NDP or any specific members that you had the opportunity to work with during your time in politics? Look, we have a lot more friends in the, the other ranks as, than people would think. Daniel Blakey gave a very nice statement on my departure. I've really enjoyed my time with Daniel. Mm -hmm. A great person, Don Davies, is someone I worked on trade when I was in government. A lot of respect for him. Tom Mulcair and I had a really good relationship, still do. Anita Anand, I think, is a good defense minister. I've said that publicly, and oh my goodness, I'm a conservative military veteran. I, I don't think they're giving enough money and equipment, but I, I don't think it's due to a lack of her trying. I will say that. She's also a good Nova Scotian. Francois-Philippe Champagne is literally an energizer buddy, and I'll never forget, during the pandemic, I was running for leader. So I'm beating up the Liberal Party, sending some of those memes that, that you pointed out earlier. Thank you. Yet he was still calling me back personally when I had constituents stuck on cruise ships. Do you remember in the first mm. part of the pandemic, he was getting back to MPs personally. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget that. And we have a good relationship to this day. John McKay was even caught on tape the other day on the House saying nice things about me. So I think people need to see that more. My last question period facing Justin Trudeau as opposition leader. He was off with COVID, and my first question was sending best to him and his kids and his family. I think we need to show that a bit more because we can, you know that cartoon of the, the coyote and the sheepdog, and they punch the clock, mm. and then when they're back on shift, they chase each other and fight, 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 but at the end of the day, they punch their clock. We need a bit more of that where you can debate very, very impassioned debates in the house, but have a beer at the end of the day. And mm -hmm. there's more of that than people think, but we're, we're losing it. And we've lost some of it because of the pandemic too. 
I appreciate, I mean, a great list of people that you shouted out. I love a Daniel Blakey shout out because when I was working as a, a guide on Parliament Hill, they'll always try and bring in one MP to speak to the guides just so you can kind of get that exposure since you're telling Canadians about what they do for work all day and stuff. Like me, he got his interest in politics through a father, through a parent. And I wasn't doing debate in the House much, but after Daniel's father, Bill, passed, I went into the House to do questions and comments on his speech just so that I could pay my respects on the loss of his father. And so we actually do care about each other. You know, I, I, I'm happy to say that on the backbench here or the, the backbench there. I think we all just have different ideas on where the country needs to go. But, you know, I, I care about the other people in those in those seats. And I said my last words in my speech was that I believed in everyone in that house. I believe in this great country and its people. And friends, I believe in each of you. It's been an honor to serve with you. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much. Some of my worries about social media, I think if we rise to them, it won't be quite as dark or polarizing as I think it could get. And uh, anything final that you wanted to add for our listeners that we haven't gotten to over the course of our conversation? Well, about I'll go through 10 minutes of my accomplishments now since we covered <laughs> all the setbacks. No, I listen, it's been an honor. You know, this morning, CBC asked, how do you encourage people to get into politics with all this division with social media. And I, I've said this to candidates that I was trying to recruit. Don't look at Twitter. Look at your kids or look at your community or look at something you care about. Because whether you're in the back bench or the front bench, you have a remarkable ability to raise awareness and to champion things and to help people. So don't lose sight of that in all the noise of social media. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and your experiences with us today. It was a pleasure having you in studio. Thank you, Matea. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when Parliament, unlike bears, will be fully hibernating for the summer. Parliament and bears, opposite schedules, who knew? If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me at Matea Roach. The 1755 Lisbon earthquake struck off the coast of Portugal on Saturday, November 1st, which was also All Saints Day. The earthquake caused a series of fires as well as a tsunami, and the combination of these factors almost completely destroyed the city of Lisbon and arguably accelerated the downfall of the Portuguese empire. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azrie with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening.
Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.